welcome to the 23rd episode of the LI Law Podcast. I'm your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 23rd episode is Spencer Sheehan, Esquire, who represents clients with legal claims in consumer and class action law. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Spencer's credentials and contact information. Please keep in mind that we will not be providing any legal advice to specific questions. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Zahava. It's a pleasure to be here. So please tell us about yourself and your area of practice. Unlike most attorneys, I did not come immediately to the law after graduating college. I toiled around in various fields and for a while considered getting a degree in international relations, which I shortly realized would not be one which I could use to have a career and progression in uh, responsibilities. So I did what many of us do, and I went to law school still not knowing what I wanted to do, and eventually managed to find an area of law to work in that I happen to think is interesting. Okay, and, and what are those areas of law in which you practice? Those areas of law involve the very petty slights that we all have to suffer each day, and we often think that there's nothing we can do about them because maybe it's just a dollar or it's just a one-month charge that we were unable to reverse on our credit card, or maybe it's you know the building that didn't give us our parking spot that we were entitled to because we were disabled. Things like that that may not always be the you know things we can do something about individually. Okay, well that that's a great segue to our article about you and Newsday in the October eighteenth, two thousand nineteen issue, in which you were called the Vanilla Vigilante. It stated that you have filed twenty seven consumer lawsuits against food manufacturers over flavor labeling. Could you please tell us about that? Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, I didn't choose the word uh, vanilla vigilante, but I leave that to the writer and his discretion. Flavor labeling is something that's very important. There are uh, hundreds of pages of regulations which require that when a food is labeled as having a certain type of flavor, it contains the ingredients that provide that flavor. Most specifically, uh, this is seen in the area of ice cream, specifically with vanilla, which happens to be a very expensive plant that's grown in tropical regions of the world and is often in limited supply. Are we talking here about the vanilla bean? Yes, the vanilla bean, or I think it has some Latin name, vanilla planifola. It might be, uh, I guess, the technical term. But yes, the vanilla bean, which is the source of so many foods and the flavor provided to them. And it happens to be the only flavor for which there is a federal standard of identity, meaning if something is called vanilla uh, cookies or vanilla wafers or vanilla yogurt, that is telling you that that product must have a sufficient amount of vanilla, which refers to the vanilla constituents that are derived from the vanilla bean. And which brands did you find were not accurate in their labeling? In terms of the ice cream products, and ice cream is specific because vanilla has almost uh, forever been associated with the flavoring of ice cream products, I found that all of the major companies or major brands, except for a few, uh, notably Haagen-Dazs, 
failed to comply with what consumers expect and what the law requires. Okay, so the picture in the newspaper was with Turkey Hill. I'm glad to hear about Haagen-Dazs because that's my husband's favorite uh, company. But I want to ask you, were there any other companies, we'll talk about positive here, were there any other companies besides Haagen-Dazs which stood out as being correct and accurate in their labeling? Yes, there were a few other companies and these companies often included uh, many of the store brands of ice cream that uh, we buy. And I think the reason for that is is that store brand products, often referred to as private label, are made by contract manufacturers. And what you see in you know the food industry is that the brands, you know the companies like the Nestle's and the Edie's or dryers, is that the brands are much less risk averse when it comes to packaging their products because they're competing for market share against their competitors. Whereas the store brand products, often made by companies which will produce products for, let's say, 100 different private label brands across the country, they have a much less interpretive take on the regulations. So they hew much closer to what the law requires. So if you see a store brand ice cream, I can be uh, confident that that ice cream will most likely be better labeled or more accurately labeled than a non-store brand. That is so interesting. So if I hear you correctly, Spencer, I think you're saying that these private label brands are actually doing a better job at describing what is in the contents of their items because they export to the 50 states as well as wherever else. So they have to abide by all of these rules as opposed to just single rules. Is that correct? That's somewhat correct, but I wanted to make the point that they're not really interested in having their products stand out or to be, uh, I guess, more noticeable than the other products. Because they are store brand products, they don't have to compete with five other brands like Haagen-Dazs, like Dove ice cream, like, you know, all these other various ice creams that are out there and you know, that have to fight for the 90% of the shelf space allotted to frozen dairy desserts. Interesting. So we're here in Great Neck, New York. Locally, are there any private label brands in the stores which in your research has shown to be very good ice cream? I can't speak to the quality of the ice cream and the taste. Unfortunately, I haven't tried all of them. But in terms of the labeling of the products, I can say that the ice cream right here at the local best market, soon to become, I believe, a Lidell, uh, is accurately labeled with a clear, transparent declaration of the presence of uh, artificial and or natural flavors right up on the front of the label where you can see it. No attempt at deception. And that's a stark contrast to the picture of the Turkey Hill ice cream, which is on the Newsday article. Yeah, very interesting. So do, how does the FDA, the, Fe, the Food and Drug Administration, get involved here? Doesn't the FDA watch the and, and control the quality of these products? Yes, that's correct. At a fundamental level, the FDA, as the food safety organization, among other roles, does control the quality of the product. And they control it, and they're more focused, or at least right now, on whether or not the food is made in compliance with safe manufacturing practices. Oftentimes we'll see on the websites or on the news a recall for maybe salmonella or some other pathogen or bacteria that somehow made its way into the distribution chain. 
So the FDA is very focused on product safety. As to product quality, it's organoleptic, sensory, and other characteristics, which we refer to as taste or flavor. That area, they're less involved, at least today. And that's because of focus on issues that are, for good reason, significantly uh, a higher priority, like vaping, like the cannabis-based products, and obesity, among others. In terms of these products, obviously it doesn't make sense financially to represent one consumer in an action where you have food mislabeling or, or mislabeling of contents. So I presume then we're talking about a class action lawsuit. And I would ask you to tell our listeners, what is a class action lawsuit, if it's a good thing or a bad thing for consumers, and how do you start one? Well, a, a class action lawsuit normally ends when you receive that postcard in the mail telling you that your Kenmore appliance is eligible for a uh, free repair at the Sears stores that's no longer open anymore. And you'll most likely just throw it out. But in most instances, hopefully you'll be able to derive some benefit from a class action case. Although the benefit, depending on whether or not you fill out that postcard in the mail, may not be something that you'll be able to put your hands on. It'll be uh, a higher level of adherence to product quality, higher level of uh, product composition, and it's a check to ensure that the rights of consumers are accurately protected against the unfettered rights of the companies whose products and services we buy and use every day. Okay, so in a class action lawsuit, an attorney or a group of attorneys, I believe, represent consumers, plaintiffs, who are all in the same situation. They all bought the ice cream. They're all complaining about the quality or the contents of the ice cream. Correct so far? That's exactly right. And how does the attorney get paid if you have 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 clients? Well, that, that's another important question because if an attorney couldn't get paid, then an attorney couldn't do this type of work. But the way that an attorney will get paid is in the event that the issue is resolved, often referred to as being settled, then the attorney's payment and compensation will be paid by the company that committed the allegedly wrongful or misleading acts. Now, sometimes that happens in the form of a class action settlement that's approved by the court, and that's when you'll see the ads in the paper or maybe on the internet asking if you or a loved one were affected by this, and if you have, then you're eligible to file a claim, whether it's a product, service, medical condition. And if not, uh, you know, sometimes if it's not settled on a class-wide basis, then the attorney will divide the recovery with the plaintiffs. Okay, so what do we do when we get those postcards? I think I received one for a Takata. Airbag? Yeah, airbag. Thank you. Airbag. So what do we do when we get those postcards? And what happens if we don't do anything? If you don't do anything, nothing will really happen. Oftentimes, and I can't disagree completely with people who criticize the class action system because it often has incentives that don't exactly add up to the time that might be required for somebody who maybe had a car five years ago that had a Takata airbag. There's really very little you can do. Just to find out what car you had from five years ago, you're going to have to look in your old records that might be in a dusty box in your basement. And even then, it will be very difficult for you to be able to track down and the information you might need to 
be part of the settlement. Tuesday article also referenced your work as Bernie Getz's attorney to avoid eviction from his Manhattan apartment for allegedly harboring a squirrel. Getz was famously known as a subway vigilante after pulling a pistol and wounding four teenagers who were trying to mug him in the New York City subway in 1984. How did your representation of Bernie Getz come about and how was it resolved? I happened to get introduced to Bernie because my father lives at Peter Cooper Village, which is part of the Stuyvesant Peter Cooper apartment complex on the east side of Manhattan. And Bernie is well known for, at least in the past, having taken care and looking after the squirrels in that region of New York City. So at some point, him being a somewhat eccentric character, and my dad, who can also be described in that way, (laughs) the two of them got to talking and over some time, Bernie disclosed that he was having issues with his apartment, and my dad, like any proud parent would do, they would say, oh, my son can help you out. And then I met with Bernie, and he showed me the hundreds of pages of documents regarding previous attempts and disputes between him and his building regarding alleged possession of squirrels, hundreds of pages in boxes, and I was able to assist him, or at least help him represent, uh, I guess, his position in that case. Did he keep the squirrels? Well, technically, you know, we never admitted that he had a, a squirrel, Zahava. <laughs> okay, so please don't make any admission here, yes. But he did uh, manage to remain in his apartment. And being that he lives in a rent-stabilized apartment, which, as most people on Long Island know, where we have a dearth of affordable housing, especially multifamily housing, when you have a an apartment in New York City that's subject to uh, rent stabilization, that's a very valuable asset. And especially if you're someone who's a senior citizen, who's on a fixed income, and really if you were to lose that apartment, I don't want to say you would be exiled to Queens, but you would be exiled far away from any city center. And for senior citizens who you know really require to be in a, a dense urban area, especially if they don't drive, it's very important that they you know, have a, a place where they live around other people. Right, and it's fair to say that rent stabilization prices are far below market value prices, and in fact, keep the neighborhood affordable for those who have lived there for so many years and may not want to leave their home and their friends. That's that's exactly right. I would say that uh, in Bernie's situation, his rent at the time was probably something like $1,400, and he lives in a building right on the corner of 14th Street and 8th or 7th Avenue, and if his apartment were to be converted to market rate, it would probably be about $4,500. And yes, that does serve a very positive function of keeping neighborhoods heterogeneous and having a mix of people, because the alternative is really uh, something that we all should not look forward to, uh, society and neighborhoods where there's no difference of ethnic and racial and socioeconomic background, that would be quite a depressing place to live. I think you're right. And I see that you have an affinity for animals or animal issues. I believe you also represented a snake owner in Florida after state authorities got involved. How did these clients find you? Well, I just want to correct the record, Zahava. She didn't own a snake. She owned an alligator. Oh, sorry. Another (laughs) reptile that slithers on the ground, although it does have four, four feet or legs. So, I came uh, aware of uh, the woman in Florida, Mary Thorne, through somebody that 
must have been her friend who saw my work for, for Bernie. And they contacted me through Facebook. And I was able to figure out what was going on there. Although I can't say that her ability to keep the alligator was my doing. I think that it's something that she probably could have handled herself. I You're very modest, okay. But I was happy to be able to, you know, give her some confidence and assistance um, in dealing with these uh, really confusing regulations related to alligators and other large non-traditional animals that many people happen to have in Florida. Very interesting. I think of pet owners as being those who have dogs and cats, but I guess it would extend to squirrels and alligators and, and other types of animals as well. Are there any other animals in which you've been involved in, in their cases? Well, I did consider an issue of someone who has a pot-bellied pig. Now, I don't know exactly what happened to uh, you know that person with their pig, but I hope they were able to keep it. What's on your desk now, Spencer? A recent matter which you can use to, to illustrate a teachable legal moment, either good or bad, to the listeners. I would say that I, I have a case now that it involves uh, what we call in the legal world a default is that when you know one of the parties doesn't show up for whatever reason and that's to show up to court meaning that's per, right. the person is summoned to court and doesn't respond to a complaint or another proceeding that's document. exactly right and there was a good reason for for this the person was not doing well and you know wasn't made aware of the uh, legal action even though the other side in this action of a creditor against the debtor sought to hold the uh, the client accountable and sought to uh, enforce the uh, letter of the law as strictly as possible to the detriment of this person who was in the hospital. The judge, you know, didn't just apply the exceptions allowed by the law, but you know, really uh, made I think the right decision by excusing this default. And the point is that it's not always going to be a technical decision whether or not one party is right or wrong. The courts and the judges often look because there are people too who are not just robots applying the law and they want to find you know the decision that's you know correct and fair and if they have to sometimes there's always a legal principle that they can do because they are people and they do their best to apply the law fairly and to make things as uh, accommodating and reach the right decision. Well I want to thank you for that very optimistic view I think most people when they have uh, an experience in the court, it may not always be so positive. So it's great to think that judges are looking out for the best interests of the party litigants. I want to remind listeners, based on what Spencer just said, if you ever receive a document in the mail and you're not sure it's a legal document and you're not sure what you should do, please call an attorney to ask what you should do. Don't act as if nothing uh, has happened because you may run into exactly the same situation which Spencer just described where a default is issued against you. You're exactly right. And in addition, of course, to always contacting an, an attorney, depending on the specific court that the documents are sent from, there may be a pro se litigants office. Now they pro most like- Pro se means you're not represented by an attorney. That's correct. And these are resources that are funded by the court system that are available to people in the various jurisdictions on Long Island and in many courts across the country where people can get resources. Now, of course, they're not able to give you legal advice either, but they can provide direction and oftentimes they can 
be a valuable resource. So that's a good first step. Absolutely, because what it does is it shows that you're not ignoring it. You can then go to the judge at some point and say, I didn't ignore this. I went to the pro se office, you know, three days after I received it in the mail. And I spoke to Jeanette, who told me to go here. And the judge will want to hear that because it'll show that you're not just disregarding official documents. Spencer, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners? Thank you. Yes. The one thought that I would just like to leave the listeners of this podcast with is that oftentimes we do find ourselves on the other end of uh, a situation that seems manifestly unfair. This might be something so simple as when we sign our cell phone contracts and then we give away our rights to demand better service. But in certain instances, it might involve something, whether it's uh, you know giving up one of our rights at work or not getting all that we paid for or maybe not being treated fairly. In those instances, it's not true that you don't have any rights because you do and you should contact an attorney and see if they can do something about it. Sometimes, maybe most times, they might not be able to, but it doesn't hurt to ask and all the attorneys on Long Island, I'm sure, will be glad to take your call and if they can help you, they'll refer you to somebody who can. Okay, well, thank you, Spencer, and certainly if any listeners have any questions for Spencer, his contact information, phone number, website, email, are all in the show notes. And that's it for our 23rd episode. Thank you so much, Spencer Sheehan, for coming on the podcast today and for teaching us all about consumer law, and thank you for your insights into what we as consumers can do to make sure that our products are are of good quality. Thank you, Zahava, for having me, and I look forward to listening to future episodes of your show. Okay. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, we would greatly appreciate your rating us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LI Law podcast that on October 17, 2019, East Quag residents voted against becoming a village. The vote was 642-4 and 889 against, which only represented 44% of the 3,468 voters eligible to cast a ballot. After the failure of the initiative, East Quag remained squarely under the supervision of the Southampton town government, although the group that wanted to incorporate might try again. If it does, the LA Law Podcast will certainly let you know. We are your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.